So my, my first question to you, and this is, I specifically wanted to get you on to talk about this, is what is fiscal and what is monetary sovereignty? Would you like to uh, explain to our audience what those concepts are? So uh, first of all, thank you for, for having me on, uh, on this program. Um, so the, the MMT approach or modern monetary theory approach uh, highlights the importance of monetary sovereignty. And monetary sovereignty means um, different countries have different degrees of monetary sovereignty. Some countries don't have any monetary sovereignty whatsoever. And those countries are the countries that use a foreign currency. In other words, their government is simply a user of a foreign currency. Right now, Scotland would be a good example of this. The currency that you use is issued by a a foreign entity, you can say. Ecuador is a country that also has no monetary sovereignty because it decided uh, a while ago to use the U.S. dollar as its uh, currency. So that means those countries that use a foreign currency are simply like you and I, consumers and businesses and, and nonprofit organizations. We're users of a national currency, which means that we have to earn it in order to be able to spend and if we wanted to spend beyond our income, we have to borrow it from somebody. And once we do that, we have a debt. And that's a real financial burden that we need to pay off at some point, either by working harder, earning more income, or reducing our spending, or doing both, working harder and reducing our spending, meaning austerity type of uh, policies. So the, the entities that don't have to operate like users of the currency, like you and I, are issuers of a national currency because they're not financially constrained. So now the question becomes for those national entities, the issuers of sovereign currency, does that mean they have an infinite capacity to spend? Absolutely not. Of course, they can create as much money as they want, but it doesn't mean they should flood the system with cash. So what constrains a sovereign issue of a currency in terms of the spending is the actual risk of inflation, which from an MMT perspective, that risk of inflation is determined by two major uh, sources. One is the lack of productive capacity. In other words, if a country runs out of skilled people, machinery, equipment, natural resources, and it still wants to spend more and create more demand for those resources, of course, it's going to cause inflation. The second source of inflation, which I think is even more important, is what I call uh, abusive price-setting behavior. When you have key entities in the market, whether it's uh, health insurance companies or real estate companies or financial institutions or broadband internet service providers, these are entities that in, in many cases have a high degree of market concentration, which means they can raise prices simply because they can or simply because we let them, because they're deregulated. And that type of inflation is not going to go away by spending less or by imposing austerity. That type of inflation only goes away if you tax and regulate that market power out of existence. In other words, if you democratize and make those markets more competitive. The first source of inflation is easier to handle in the sense that when we have a shortage of productive capacity, it gives us the opportunity 
to actually ramp up production because capacity is producible. So we can train more doctors, we can train more nurses, we can build more hospitals, and it happens to create millions of jobs depending on the size of the economy. So these are the, the major sources of inflation. And the more democratic and competitive the economy and the system is, the more potential we have to expand productive capacity without increasing market concentration, which means we are able to push that risk of inflation further and further away, which means we can increase the potential for prosperity without having to kind of sit in our hands and say, we have to impose austerity to avoid the risk of inflation. So that changes the analysis fundamentally between uh, 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 the national government and its capacity to create wealth for the country versus a local municipality or a local region within a country. And to go back to your initial question, which is the status of, of Scotland right now, is the equivalent of a, a district or a municipality or a, or a state within the United States. So the equivalent of the state of Ohio, which is where I live. The state of Ohio can't issue its own currency. It's a user of the U.S. dollar. So it must tax the local residents in order to spend, and it needs to borrow in order to spend on infrastructure and, uh, and whatever the state uh, needs, which means our debt as a state is a serious financial burden that we, the residents of the state, have to pay for by paying more taxes in the future, spending less, and, and so on. That's vastly different from what the federal government in the U.S. can do. So in, in your case, the U.K. government is the sovereign issuer of the British pound, and Scotland is the equivalent of a, of a region or a district or municipality that must operate under sound financial principles which raises an interesting question in, in the case of Scotland with all the debates that, um, that you're having uh, over uh, the issue of independence is transitioning to an independent Scotland without acquiring full monetary sovereignty and the capacity to issue a national currency is not, from an MMT perspective, is not true economic independence. You're still, from a financial economic standpoint, you're still going to be a sub-region of the UK uh, government. Yeah, but I, I would also say to you, Fidel, I mean, even from a non-MMT perspective, you would say that, you know, you cannot be, um, uh, you know, you can't really be independent if you're using another country's currency. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I mean, the other thing that I wanted to touch with you, um, there was something that you'd said in another podcast that I'd listened to about the fundamental aspect of a country being sovereign as well. So obviously currency is one of those components. You need the currency, uh, it, you know, for me, I, I often describe it as the policy tool for politicians. You know, you can't action people to work in your national health service without being able to pay them or being able to pay the builders to build the hospital in the first place or the roads or whatever kind of infrastructure you're setting up as a country to make the country run uh, as, a, as a, a normal modern economy should do. Um, but the, there are fundamental things that you need to have. So first of all, what you talked about was we need to be food sovereign and we need to be energy sovereign and we need to have an educated population. Now, I would argue that Scotland has these things in spades. What do you think about that? So it, it's a 
very basic observation that you can't run an economy without food, without feeding people. You can't run an economy without energy, at least uh, definitely not a, a modern economy that uses a lot of energy for transportation, heating and cooling and, and industrial production, which is very energy intensive. So these are the, the building blocks of, of any economy. And if a country relies on these imports, then it's, it's always going to be deficient. Uh, the advantage that Scotland has is that it does have food security. It does have energy security. Quite a bit of it is actually renewables in, increasingly. And it does have uh, an educated population, meaning a skilled population that can allow the country to specialize in higher value added content manufacturing, which is extremely important because in, in, if, if you're operating in the international economy and you happen to export low value added products and you import high value added products, you're always losing no matter how fast you try to accelerate your exports, no matter how fast you try to accelerate your production. So the only way to allow a country to specialize in the higher value added content is by having the technical skills, the educational skills, the research and development capabilities that allow you to attract higher value-added manufacturing. So in the global economy, you'll find countries that produce capital equipment, innovate, and, uh, and create the high-value-added products versus countries that specialize in doing the assembly line type of work, meaning they buy all the inputs, they buy all the intermediate components and capital, they even import the energy to fuel the, the, the assembly lines, and they simply add low-cost labor meaning racing to the bottom at the lowest cost possible to assemble those products for re-export, usually in the global north. So Scotland has the advantage of being placed um, in terms of uh, on the higher end of that scale in terms of skills and technical capabilities. So it has all the right components to be a really successful, thriving, independent economy with its food security, with its energy security, and with its educational and research and development and technical capabilities to have the right kind of mix of economic uh, factors to thrive uh, independently. Yeah, I mean, that this is something that I discussed with you before, that um, fundamentally, it seems to me for an advanced economy, where your advanced economy really wants to be going is that you do not want to be exporting potatoes and buying televisions. So. Right. Happily, we are not in that situation. Although we do, we are, uh, we do export a lot of food from Scotland as well. But we also export satellites, and we also have, um, with within the world, we are we our universities are within the top two hundred in the world. Um, we have lots and lots of advantages in Scotland to to be an independent country. But I have to tell you, Fidel, that a lot of people. Um, actually don't believe that that's possible uh, in Scotland. You might be surprised to find that, but when you know something about the economy, and actually I would say that from my research, and more specifically Business for Scotland, who I'd like to mention in the podcast as well, I've done lots and lots of research on this as well to highlight exactly what, um, what a huge mixed economy we have here in Scotland, as well as being food exporters, as well as having really great universities, 
um, uh, 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 the life sciences sector um, is, is massive here as well. And my alma mater, Dundee University, um, actually punched is above MIT. That's for people that don't know. That's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology um, in pharmaceutical research. And people will be really, really surprised that um, uh, Scotland's actually a medium-sized country on the world stage. Um, that medium-sized country does so well in comparison in some areas in comparison to such huge country as the United States. So I just wanted to talk up my country a little right. bit more during this, this um, podcast, this program as well. And for you to know a little bit more about it as well, that it has a very mixed economy. And I think that that gives it a huge amount of resilience. Um, I mean, presumably for any economy as well, you don't want to be just running three basic things um, you know, I heard someone make a comment recently that, you know, oh, Scotland should just do tourism and finance. And, you know, that sounds, that sounds like a complete disaster. Surely for any country, you would want your economy to have, um, you know, a mixed basket of eggs fundamentally. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think about that? Well, I think the key word that you just uh, said earlier is resilience. I think that's the key thing for, for any, especially for smaller countries uh, in, in general. Resilience includes food security, includes energy security, and in, includes from an economic standpoint, resilience to external shocks. And those external shocks hurt the most when it comes to food and energy, actually in medical services, medical needs. I'll, I'll give you an example. Many developing countries because they have these weaknesses in terms of food security, energy security, and high dependence on imported technology, especially medical technology and medicine in, in general, every time there is an external shock to their economy, meaning a, a substantial decline in their export revenues, a substantial decline in tourism revenues, a substantial decline in foreign direct investment into a country, typically what happens is that the value of that currency falls relative to the dollar, relative to the euro, the British pound, which means with the weaker currency, everything you import, whether it's food or medicine or fuel, is now imported at a higher relative price, which means you're literally importing inflation. And that means your consumers will be facing uh, expensive food, expensive transportation costs, expensive energy costs, and expensive medical treatment costs which in most countries translates into social unrest, especially food. We have food riots all over the world when these things happen. So as a result, those governments, in order to avoid that social unrest, in order to avoid the economic pain for the most vulnerable people, those governments step in and artificially fix their exchange rate at a higher level so that everything they import is affordable to their consumers, especially basic food and energy. So the way to fix the exchange rate artificially is by borrowing US dollars or euros or British pounds or Japanese yen. In other words, you accumulate what we call external debt, debt denominated in foreign currencies. And that takes a sovereign government that issues its own government from a high degree of monetary sovereignty to a lower degree of monetary sovereignty because that external debt needs to be paid at some point in the future. So of course this accumulates year after year, decade after decade because most countries have these structural weaknesses that persist in many cases since colonial times and then post-colonial times. So this is a long-term structural problem. So now you have a systematic approach to public policy that prioritizes external debt payments, 
because you can't default on your external debt because you need to borrow more in the future because you have that structural weakness. So now you set your priorities based on the things that will allow you to continually make the payments on time so that you can borrow at an affordable rate moving forward. So now you're thinking like a household. You're thinking, how do I earn this income in foreign currency reserves in order to pay my bills on time and not lose the house and not lose you know, access to financial resources? So I'll give you an example. Now you have to prioritize um, industries and areas of the economy that exclusively generate dollars and euros. So tourism becomes an important thing. Um, uh, Export-oriented industries become uh, incentivized and prioritized. And for countries that have energy deficiency and food, uh, lack of food security, the more tourists you bring in, the more food you have to import the more energy you have to import for those tourists to transport them, house them, heat and cool the buildings for them. So it becomes a further trap. And of course, tourism, you're not the only country competing for tourists. There's a hundred some other beautiful countries with great people and great food and great places to visit. So all of those developing countries are racing to the bottom, lowering costs, subsidizing food, subsidizing energy, just for the sake of attracting more tourists. And it looks like a solution because it's, it is creating jobs in the tourism industry. It is bringing foreign currency reserves, but it's also bleeding foreign currency reserves and bleeding in terms of food security and energy security. So it's not a sustainable solution. I'll give you another example from my own home country, Tunisia, related to agriculture. Because we're so obsessed with earning euros and dollars to pay for the external debt, we have an agricultural policy that actually weakens food security as opposed to increases it. So we allocate the most uh, precious water resources in, in a country that experiences significant droughts, and we allocate the most fertile land to producing things like strawberries, which are not really needed for food security because it's an export commodity to Europe. And instead, we have lack of food security and basic staples like wheat and barley which we have to import from the Ukraine and Russia and Australia and other places at prices that fluctuate constantly and fluctuate upwards in, in the opposite direction we want them and cause even more food insecurity in the country. So had we had food security, energy security, had we had a stronger degree of monetary sovereignty, we would allocate our natural resources in the most effective way, which is produce for food security as opposed to produce for whatever Europe needs, in this case, strawberries. Um, so I can go on with many, many other examples. But what I want to highlight here, in addition to all of these inefficiencies and, and structural problems, the market power and concentration of market power that is often created because of these inefficiencies actually makes it worse. So you can be a country like the Ukraine, for example, which does have food security, by the way, but still have food price inflation because of abusive market power. Uh, and this is, ironically, this is something that the Ukraine is experiencing as we speak. Um, global commodity prices have been increasing um, uh, over the last uh, year or so, partly because of the pandemic, but also partly because of market concentration. So the Ukraine has the food items that they need domestically to fully satisfy the need of their population. And they have plenty to export to the rest of the world. So what's happening? Global food prices go up. So what do 
price setters in the Ukraine do? They raise domestic food prices, even though there is no shortage domestically. There's no reason for local prices to go up. They do it because the Ukrainian government allows them to do it, because they're not regulated, because they're hijacking the economy, even though they do have food security. So having food security in Scotland doesn't mean that you're safe if you're not vigilant for these yeah. pressure points, for this yeah. concentration of market power. And it's, and it's actually pretty vicious because the price setters use food and energy and, and health services in particular because they're sensitive pressure points for governments and for the economy. So they can blackmail governments by raising prices and causing pain and say, give us what we want, which is deregulation, which is whatever laws they want, whatever additional power, or else, you know, your government is facing an election in the next few months and people are not going to like this higher price and exclusive, you know, uh, land ownership or real estate or whatever the industry is. They always have ways to use their leverage, their economic power to blackmail governments and hijack uh, people's livelihoods in order to get what they want. So uh, I, I always say, you know, first focus on building the food security, energy security, and, and the basic needs for the country. But at the same time, make sure that you're not handing monopoly power or oligopoly power in the hands of key players who will actually hijack that sovereignty from you. Yeah, Fidel, that, that, that leads really nicely into my question around trade and globalization. And I'm looking at Scotland and we've covered the idea that it has to be it has to be a currency issuer to have its own monetary sovereignty. And it has to have security in food, energy and education. And that's, you know, we're, we're pretty confident it's got these last three, maybe not the first one at the moment as we move to independence. But Scotland's still a small country of kind of five and a half million. And really, when we look at sovereignty, it's around control and how much sovereignty does a small nation have now? and a globalized world, even if it is a currency issuer and it's in control of those other three areas? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, an interesting example is to look at Singapore, which is even, you know, a, a smaller uh, nation with very limited uh, amount of natural resources. But because it's specialized in higher value added content of manufacture, because they prioritize educational technical training, and because they also operate in an open global economy, they didn't close their economy to protect it. So they're able to compete internationally and attract investment and attract, you know, the, the highest end uh, type of, um, you know, international partnerships. And they were able to do it without causing a real estate bubble. So housing is affordable for the people of Singapore because of government regulation. Had they let that be, you know, set by market conditions, they would have experienced the highest, you know, real estate bubble in, in the region and extremely unaffordable housing prices. So the size doesn't really matter. What matters is what is the economic strength and capabilities and what is the legal framework within which you operate. Um, and, and it's a country that has a sovereign currency. Uh, and it's a country that has a, a highly regulated financial system so that it doesn't lead to excessive concentration of power within a particular industry. It's, it's by no means the, the utopian government or utopian nation, but it, it goes to show you that you can have a very small country with very limited uh, uh, 
real natural resources, but it has the economic capabilities and foundations and regulatory framework to safeguard the quality of life for, for their citizens and, and residents. Could, could one of the concerns of Scotland leaving the United Kingdom would be that it's leaving a big economy with a lot of bargaining power within international trade agreements. And if it becomes an independent country and it's smaller, it's not going to have as much of a clout in terms of negotiating and, and trade deals. And obviously, the less clout means less power, which means less sovereignty. Sure. So that's why I'm interested in this idea that if Scotland is standing alone, will it be able yep. to will it be able to have what we would call a sovereign nation? when it is small and it's in, you know it's involved in these global trade agreements which which affect Scotland in a way that it can't really um, decide on on how it, how it's affected very good question so i, I work with the the number of, of very small developing countries that have all kinds of structural weaknesses and and this is a major question that they ask too it's we have a, a sovereign currency but we're trying to build a higher degree of monetary sovereignty and, and for me, the answer is always the following. You can only bargain for more if you actually have a certain degree of resilience. So you can actually bargain. Otherwise, you have nothing on the table to bargain with. And that usually means, at minimum, your food and energy security. Because if your people are going to starve the next morning, you can't really bargain. If, if your economy is going to be shut down, no access to energy, you can't really bargain. So you're going to give them whatever they want which means your entire economic policy is going to be steered from abroad. You're simply, even if you have a ministry of industry, your ministry of industry has no industrial policy because your industrial policy is being determined by the FDI nations, by the countries who are importing from you. They tell you what they want you to produce and you just have to do it because you have no other choice. So having a certain degree of resilience allows you to actually have a stronger bargaining position in international trade. So it's really not about the size of your economy. It's about whether you can walk away or not. <laughs> because if you can sit at the negotiation table and say, well, this trade deal doesn't work for us, we're going to go home and we're going to be fine. Our people will be fed, our universities will be running, and our economy will be functioning. You're not really losing in that negotiation. But if walking away, away from that negotiation table and not taking a trade deal means you're going to have food riots the next morning, you're not going to walk away. You're going to accept whatever trade deal you're getting. So the, the stronger resilience to these external pressures you have, the stronger your bargaining position. Because then your international trade negotiations don't always have to go with the United States or Japan or the biggest economies. You can actually use your strategic position as a resilient economy, as a resilient nation, to partner with dozens of other countries who actually don't have that resilience and who would be more than happy to work with you as long as you work in a strategic partnership with them so that you have mutually reinforcing resilience trade partnership so that Scotland can use its strategic advantage in the energy industry to help dozens of other countries who want to acquire that degree of uh, resilience. They, they, Scotland can use its advantage in agricultural uh, resilience to help dozens of other countries who are willing to bargain for something that you want as long as you help them achieve a higher degree of resilience. And the more of these coalitions 
of smaller and global South countries you build, the stronger the negotiation power you're going to have internationally as, as Scotland or as countries in the global South in, in general. And, and this has been the problem in international trade negotiations for the last, uh, you know, 50 years at least, which is, you know, the dominant countries like the U.S., like the European Union, establish the rules and exclude uh, food in particular <laughs> from, from those negotiations. That's been the, the biggest problem for developing countries. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the cap, uh, the common agricultural policy of, of the EU has destroyed agriculture in the global south and, and Africa in particular because the former colonies used to be the breadbasket for Europe. <laughs> but after independence, it became a position of power for these newly independent developing countries. And it became a strategic weakness for Europe because Europe didn't have food security. While CAP was designed to reintroduce food security in, in the European Union and as a result, completely destroy agriculture and farming in, in the global south and make the global south food dependent. Uh, so these things actually matter enormously. Um, which is why during those trade negotiations, the GATT trade negotiations, which eventually led to the WTO creation, they used to say free trade in everything but arms and farms. So weapons <laughs> off the table and farms off the table because that's food security, that's national security. Um, so it's, it's very clear that the, the stronger, you know, more uh, influential countries completely recognize the importance of food security. They just don't want it for other countries. <laughs> so you want, because it, it does matter in terms of the next step of negotiation. If, if you can't feed your people, you can't negotiate for anything. You can't walk away from negotiating tables. Um, and if, of course, if you can't run your economy with, uh, with energy, you, you can't walk away from the negotiation table. If you don't have you know, public health uh, resilience and security, you can't walk away from the negotiation table because you need things for your survival. But you can walk away from the negotiation table for other things as long as you have the resilience to withstand those negotiations and withstand potential clashes in, in international trade. Yeah, I think that's it. That's very clear for me. I mean, I, I work for myself and obviously I've had to do negotiation in the past and you, ha you ha understand that you have to be self-sufficient before you can really make those those negotiations as well. The other thing that I really wanted to quiz you about today was about the devaluing of the currency. I know for a lot of people within the uh, within Scotland, they're very concerned about the idea of us having our own currency and that it would be immediately predated on. Um, mm -hmm. My understanding from this is that, you know, that's just not possible with a new currency because other people won't have it yet. And if it's floated as quickly as possible, then that will also prevent, you know, um, nefarious predation on the currency. Um, what are your thoughts about that, Fidel? So, very good question. So, uh, currency devaluation hurts the most when you need to import food the next morning, when you need to import energy in the next morning, when you need to import basic medical necessities the next morning. So, those are not issues for Scotland right now. Uh, number two, the day you decide you're going to switch your entire you know, uh, currency base from British pounds to uh, a national uh, uh, currency, the actual quantity of British pounds and foreign currency reserves that you have right now in the country 
are not going to evaporate. That becomes a major source of foreign currency reserves for the country because you're simply going to switch those bank accounts from British pounds uh, or whatever currency people have in their foreign, foreign currency accounts to the national currency. So your central bank is going to start on day one with a substantial amount of foreign currency reserves, which it can use to defend the value of the new currency. Number three, you have your regulatory framework sovereignty, which means you can actually impose capital controls. You can impose restrictions and on speculative attacks on, on your currency, at least in that uh, initial transition and potentially further along. So you have all of these things going for you, plus you're not importing massive amounts of food or energy, the major things that will weaken your economy. Sure, it may affect somebody who's interested in buying a BMW from Germany or, or, or some other you know, luxury item, but that, that's not going to hurt the resilience of the economy. Um, and you don't have to go to extreme levels like many developing countries do where every imported item needs to acquire a license and approval from the central bank in order to bring it in because those central banks have very limited foreign currency reserves and if they allow everybody to import everything, food and energy and medical equipment and luxury items, then the central bank will simply run out of foreign currency reserves and you'll simply face a massive devaluation. So that's why those capital controls are imposed, is to minimize the imports. Now, if your economy can run its basic industrial capacity, food, energy, transportation internally without having to rely on imports, then the only major imports that you're going to have are going to be maybe some capital equipment that you don't have locally. Well, you're going to have plenty of room, plenty of flexibility to import all the technical equipment that you need that you may not be producing locally and to allow for a relatively open uh, international economy because you have that basic level of, of resilience. So I don't foresee um, a, a massive devaluation of the new currency happening unless you have... Uh, a concerted effort by international speculators to attack the currency. Uh, and, and as I said, you have ways to protect yourself from that, uh, from that kind of speculative attack. So the, the other thing I wanted to touch upon as well was the, the concept of public debt or national debt. Um, my understanding now is that, well, fundamentally, now that we no, no longer have the gold standard, which stopped in 1971, is that money in and of itself is inherently valueless. And the reason that it is value, valuable to people is because they have to pay their taxes in it. So, you know, for most of us, we're not going to be interested in um, having Bitcoin because it's not going to buy our, our food shopping at the local supermarket. It's not going to help us. So um, having your, your country's currency is, is uh, how you're going to operate. Now, debt, my understanding of debt in, in the UK's uh, context is that really fundamentally this is bonds we're talking about bonds and bonds are being bought in the currency of the uk which the uk creates mm -hmm. i would term them more i would describe them more as term deposit accounts at the central bank that's really what a bond is so someone buys a bond from their bank and then that is stored at the central bank and the central bank gives them a better percentage of uh, interest on top of that than I will get from my super saver account at my local bank. 
I will not get that same level of debt. So the concept of Scotland having to pay back debt to England when we separate, that just seems completely crazy for me because the UK is the monopoly issuer of the pound. So the pound is inherently valueless unless you're paying your taxes in it. So it, 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 it just seems like a crazy concept to think that we'd have to pay back debt in that context when you understand the nature of currency and the, and the nature of what a bond is and what debt is. What do you think about that? So, uh, so it's, you're, you're partially right there in the sense that, you know, transitioning to a sovereign government, the, the, the concept of a national debt is not the same thing as, you know, personal debt. But currently, a lot of um, Scottish residents and citizens who would be using the new national currency in the future, they have maybe borrowed money from a private bank in British pounds, and they have a debt payment scheduled for the next 20 years to pay for their house or to pay for their car, to pay for their business. So private sector debt currently is denominated in British pounds. And transitioning to a national currency it will depend who they owe that money to, whether it's going to be Scottish financial institutions who will be more than happy to accept the national currency and payments, or it's actually foreign banks whether it's British or European or American banks, who expect payments in foreign currency. So as, as, a, as a working class individual who bought this house or bought this car, as we transition to a national currency, my wages will be paid to me in the new national currency, but my debt is denominated in a foreign currency now. So that potentially creates a problem. So the heavier the debt burden on consumers, the more difficult that transition would be. Difficult, but not impossible, because it, it will require you know, either some negotiation with those financial institutions to agree on a preset uh, price, and it's those financial institutions who fear the devaluation, and it's those individuals who have that debt who fear the devaluation because now they can't afford to pay for their house or for their car or their business. So it's those are the details that matter the most, and those are not impossible to handle in an orderly transition to a national currency. Uh, but so that's where the the thinking and the negotiations and the work needs to happen. It's not about assuming that a speculative attack that the economy is going to be weak automatically and that the country is trapped into you know not uh, fully transitioning to an independent sovereign currency. So those, if, if you think about the situation that Greece was, was facing during the crisis and the, the idea of Grexit, uh, Scotland is not even close to that level of uh, economic weakness and, and difficulty. Because for Greek, it was you know, very difficult for the entire country to leave the Eurozone, not because of the, Euro, the rules of the Euro in and of themselves, but because of the huge amount of private sector debt that they had. And that's why the negotiators from the EU perspective were not willing to let Greece go because they knew what was going to come after that, which is a massive wave of defaults on that private sector consumer debt, which the government could very easily say, well, we're not responsible for what private individuals do, right? They didn't pay you, you took the risk, and you're going to have to eat your losses. 
which is a potential negotiation tactic. But you can't negotiate based on that if you know the next morning you're going to need the rest of the European countries to send you food, to send you jobs, to, to send you uh, energy, because you have no resilience to negotiate moving forward. But if Scotland wanted to say, well, we're going to pay this private sector external debt at this particular rate in our national currency moving forward, you can actually negotiate. Because if, if, you, if you walk away, it's the lenders who will lose, right? And you have internal resilience for your food and energy and economic sovereignty. So you're not going to suffer significant consequences if you walk away. All private debt, but you have a bargaining position to start with. It's incredibly, incredibly interesting that. And for me, it kind of sums up one of the huge issues around neoliberalism is that we are thinking about government debt as something that's similar to our own debt. And we actually are thinking about that and we're giving it primacy. We're thinking about it being so bad and the idea that we've got to pay that back all individually, we've somehow got to pay back this government debt. And it's primacy because we're not really thinking about the actual debt that we have as consumers. And obviously this is what's happened in neoliberal economies is all the debt has been actually pushed on to individuals and not so much onto government. So it's fascinating thinking about that Scots should be considering their own personal debt and, and, and thinking about how Scotland transitions away to another currency to mitigate that and less about this idea of a kind of foreign national debt. Right. And I mean, it's one thing that the government can do as you transition to a national currency to completely simplify this, this process is to say to all residents and citizens who have debt, private debt denominated in British pounds or, or euros, that you'll continue to make your monthly mortgage payment or car payment or small business loan payment at the you know current rate, whatever the transition rate in the new national currency. And those banks who you know uh, receive the 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 this, the new national currency, they know you know what it's worth. And the the main thing that will immediately or very quickly you know, stabilize everything is how the economy actually performs. Because you have these panics and fears and, and, and uncertainty about what's going to happen as we transition. But as soon as the outside observers, including the speculators, including all the people who worry about the devaluation and inflation, all of this, as soon as they realize that the economy is actually thriving, one of the things you'll see is that you'll see more investment coming in. Because investment goes to thriving economies, prosperous economies. So if you focus your attention to building resilience, to building an economy that creates good paying jobs and thriving middle class, you will attract investment. You will not see money flowing out of the country. You'll see money flowing in the country. And that actually strengthens your currency. It doesn't cause a devaluation. So as soon as that effect sets in, all of these fears about devaluation and currency speculation will, will go away. Because currency speculators want to actually see the currency weaken and they disappear as soon as they realize that they can't actually destroy the economy. That's what speculators want to see. They, they bet against the currency. Um, and, and what we're talking about here, you have all the factors of resilience that will actually allow you to strengthen the currency over time, not weaken it. 
Yeah, I mean, I uh, I lived in the Netherlands when we literally, I moved there about two months before we transitioned from the Hulder to the Euro. So my bank account just stayed the same, but the, the little symbol in front of the numbers changed. That was really the only thing that changed. I think from what I remember, there were some uh, traders, uh, high street shops, maybe tried to put their prices up. But actually, this happened in the 1970s when I was a child as well, with the advent of decimalization. And the same thing happened there too. So um, it seemed to me not to be such a, a crazy transition or um, there, there seemed to be certainly people who wanted to take advantage of it. But on the whole, it was quite a smooth thing. Didn't really make a lot of change to me personally. I think one of the points we have to make is that, you know, there's, I'd imagine, over 100 different currencies in the world. And Scotland having its own currency makes, you know, brings it to being 101 other currencies in the world. And this is not something unique to an independent Scotland, this idea of having its own currency and defending it and building uh, resilience and also spending it within the economy to boost how attractive the currency and the economy is. It's, it, it's not something unique to Scotland when it becomes independent. And, and here's another thing that a lot of people tend to uh, ignore, that if, if the uh, UK government is going to support the transition, one of the things that Scotland could negotiate, and, and many other countries have um, you know, this advantage, is what we call a, a central bank swap line which essentially uh, is something that the Federal Reserve Bank uh, during the pandemic and during the 2008 financial crisis has offered uh, an open-ended credit line, essentially, to uh, the European Central Bank, to the Bank of Japan, Bank of Canada, the Swiss Central Bank, the UK, uh, the Bank of England. And these swap lines are designed essentially as a line of credit that's open-ended, infinite, in other words, that allows those central banks to have access to U.S. dollars as needed during the crisis in order to stabilize their exchange rate. And, and that was important for international financial stability because of the disruption that the pandemic caused and, and the 2008 financial crisis. So we know how to do this and how to stabilize um, exchange rates and, and completely kind of uh, kill any form of speculative attack by having just an international agreement between two central banks. So it's very plausible that one of the things that you want to do as you transition is to have an open-ended agreement with the Bank of England that says, for the foreseeable future, as we transition, whether it's one year, two years, five years, or even you know, you know, 20 years, we're gonna have a swap line. It doesn't mean that you'll actually use it, but you have access to it, which means any speculative attack we completely pushed away simply by knowing that you have plenty of access to foreign currency reserves, in this case, uh, British pounds, to defend the value of your currency. Just having that on the books in and of itself convinces speculators that they shouldn't even bother to, to attack a particular currency. So we know these things work. Uh, at the international level, beyond what the Fed does exclusively, beyond what you know, some central banks offer to, you know, neighboring countries or friendly countries. We've been advocating for this to be established as an international convention, uh, either by the IMF using its uh, special drawing rights, SDRs, as an open-ended credit line for all countries, especially developing countries, or by introducing what Keynes himself had proposed in 1945, which is 
an international unit of account that will be the automatic stabilizer for all international currencies, especially for the weaker economies, so that the weaker economies don't obsess with the accumulation of foreign currency reserves to pay their debts if they have an open credit line, and then they focus their attention on actually building resilience and creating domestic full employment and prioritizing the things that will actually allow them to grow and prosper over time. Um, because under the current system, we do the opposite. We prioritize specifically the things that weaken the economy over time and never get you out of that debt trap. So there are ways to do this in an orderly fashion. Um, we just have to establish them and negotiate for, for these things. So do you think, for example, the European Central Bank would set up a swap line with the Scottish Central Bank or the Scottish Reserve Bank? They could if they wanted to, right? Uh, but if they wanted to make uh, the transition difficult, more dangerous, they could by saying, no, we will not give you a swap line. Okay. And uh, obviously the same thing would apply to the Federal Reserve and um, and the Bank of England as well. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had another question for you, Fidel, as well, that came up more recently for me. And um, I wondered what your thoughts were on, you know, the relationship between the public and private sector. Um, you know, I did some research recently to look at how big the um, public sector was in the UK in comparison to our Scandinavian neighbours. And um, our Scandinavian neighbours mostly run a, a public sector that uses about 30, 30 just under 30 percent of their workforce. Um, whereas here in the UK, it's about 16.2%. I don't know what the percentage is in the United States. And of course, I imagine it varies across the different states as well. You know, it seems to me fairly reasonable, looking at the Scandinavian countries, that at around about a third of your working population are working to fundamentally operate the levers of your country, make sure you've got all the infrastructure in place. I think possibly a lot of people might really appreciate this a lot more since the pandemic arrived and how important it is to have a public sector when something like this happens. You know, is there any kind of ratio that you think is, is, a, is an ideal or do you think it just depends from country to country? Uh, there is no magic, uh, magical formula or ratio for, for this. I think it, it varies from country to country. Uh, and, and that's why I always say focus on whatever provides that resilience for you. If your private sector happens to provide quite a bit of the resilience uh, and it only needs to be complemented you know, marginally by the government, so be it. But if the private sector is not there, then it's the responsibility of the public sector to step in in whatever neglected areas of the economy, neglected by market, uh, so that you provide those strategic areas of public services, resilience, infrastructure, whatever the needs are. Um, so the, the government should always stand ready to complement whatever the private sector is not providing or is undersupplying to, to the economy. Uh, and, and the obvious areas are, are health and infrastructure and, and, and usually strategic areas that will be absolutely necessary for the future. The market is always, by design, undersupplying those or unwilling to put the upfront investment to lead the economy into the future. Uh, it's usually the public sector that pays for the major components of research and development. 
through public universities, usually through research and, and development. And then the venture capitalists show up at the end of the process to pick up the, the ripe fruit to privatize the, the, the gains. So, and, and that's, that's fine as long as we know how the system operates and who's contributing to that technological innovation from, from scratch, not just from you know, the, the last stage of transitioning to, um, to marketing a particular product. Uh, Fidel, casting your mind back to 2016 uh, and Brexit, and when the United Kingdom left the European Union, I'd quite I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts were on the idea of sovereignty. What sovereignty did the United Kingdom regain when it left the European Union? Well, uh, I mean, the it, the question is is really about what sovereignty the UK was going to lose by by remaining in in the European Union, and I think the the whole process. Uh, that the EU started uh, after 2008 was really motivated, and, and this is my interpretation, was really motivated by the fact that the, the big countries in, in, in the Eurozone, uh, Germany and France in, in particular, felt like the uh, ripple effect of the 2008 financial crisis and the, and the massive intervention that you know, European governments had to put on the table to bail out their financial system and to stimulate their economies was mostly borne by the Eurozone countries, Germany and, and France, and that the UK was outside of that space, simply dealing with its banking system, with its economy. And clearly the recovery in the UK was much faster, precisely because the UK had the fiscal policy space and the capacity to deal with the crisis. I'm not saying that the UK dealt with it you know, in, a, in an ideal way, it, it has all kinds of problems, but at least it has the fiscal capacity to intervene. As a matter of fact, the UK led the way internationally. Uh, if you remember the details of the sequence of events, the United States didn't really think it was necessary to have a massive intervention in 2008 until the UK government you know, really put pressure on the Bush administration saying, what, what the hell are you doing? This is going to create a global collapse. We need a fiscal intervention to this. And, and that convinced the U.S. immediately to, to follow. It wasn't really the U.S. leading the way. So it is in that moment that the Eurozone countries realize that they need a big government and a strong you know, economy like the U.K. to join the Eurozone, to be in the Eurozone. But the U.K. government from day one of these negotiations, you know, back in pre-Eurozone creation, the U.K. knew that it didn't really need to be in the eurozone or want to be in the eurozone because it meant losing your fiscal capacity losing your fiscal policy um, uh, sovereignty and independence which is the most precious thing the uk had in 2008 which the other european governments didn't have so uh, that's when the eurozone or the eu said you're either in or out you know you're you're in in the sense that the uk was taking advantage of all the free trade agreements inside the eurozone and inside the EU but it wasn't part of the monetary union that um, where the burden was mostly on Germany and France during uh, during the crisis so you know if if I was uh, involved in those negotiations I would definitely opt for leaving for keeping my monetary and economic sovereignty rather than saying, okay, we're going to join and we're going to sign this collective suicide pact 
to be happy all together in, in the Eurozone. Or the UK could have used its leverage in, in that uh, negotiation to say, well, we'll enter the Eurozone, but only if you create a different set of rules instead of this collective suicide pact, which is what the you know um, austerity policies are, to create a truly democratic European Union fiscal authority that actually plays the role of a fiscal authority of a of a counter cyclical fiscal policy as the sovereign issuer of a eurozone wide currency, but even there it is still going to be diluting the political sovereignty of the UK government by having all other governments participate in what would be a fiscal authority. Because, you know, even a, a fiscal authority uh, at the Eurozone-wide level may not be the same as, say, the U US fiscal authority. When we have a crisis in California or in Ohio or New York, the federal government doesn't think, oh, those people in California, we're not going to help them as much. I mean, they need to figure out on their own. Although we've seen actually examples of this when Mitch McConnell during the pandemic, was the, um, uh, the, the leader of the Senate uh, last year, he literally told states, go file for bankruptcy. We're not going to help you. Because he was looking at blue states versus red states, which is not what you're supposed to do if you're part of a national authority, right? To use the political differences to hurt a particular state. Um, so even there... You know, why would the UK want to be in a, in a larger fiscal authority that would not actually help the UK government in times of crisis and prioritize Germany or France as opposed to Greece or Portugal, which is what happened during the crisis. So it's completely understandable that if you understand what you need to do and what you need to have during uh, difficult economic times, and that the Eurozone is simply not going to give you that, why would you want to be part of it? So you're so actually fun. willing to give up all the free trade perks in order to have uh, your actual economic and political sovereignty and resilience um, during bad economic times, which is what matters the most. So, so Fidel, in summary then, you wouldn't be suggesting that Scotland should leave uh, using the pound and jumping in with Europe and just transferring the use of a foreign currency from London to a foreign currency from Europe. Yeah, what, uh, what's the expression? I don't know if it's an American expression or not. It's just jumping from the fire to the frying pan or something like that. Uh, that's how I would describe it. Uh, if, if you understand what it means to have economic and monetary sovereignty, why would you want to join the Eurozone? So being independent from the UK is one thing, but you know, jumping inside the Eurozone for the sake of having access to the larger market or whatever uh, means that you're also still losing your monetary sovereignty because you're not gonna have a national currency. When you face the next crisis, you're gonna be in the same position as Portugal or Italy or France. You're gonna have the Troika dictate your national policy on wages, on trade, on investment, on public health, on education. Um, so. We, We've seen this in the last 10 years. Why would Scotland want to join such uh, restrictive uh, political setting uh, that will actually hurt uh, the, the economy in the long term and hurt the people of Scotland in the long term? Great. If anything, the UK government is probably friendlier than the Eurozone. 
Well, well, I'm not too sure about that, but we'll, we'll, well, we'll see. <laughs> that's what I said, the fire in the frying pan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I I think we've we've kept you for long enough. It's now uh, you've you've gone over an hour. So I, I I could always ask you lots more questions, but I think that's enough also for our first show as well. So um, I just want to thank you again, Fidel, for coming along and being with My us. Pleasure. And I know that you've just you just gave a lecture. I think before you did this interview, I'm sure you've got to go back to work soon as well. So <laughs> thanks um, so much, Fidel. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank along. you very much.